Everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher. Call this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora podcast network where we discuss political science and popular culture. Hosted by Brock Roderman and Peter Sleep. So today's episode, we're going to be discussing Civil War, because finally Peter has uh, scrounged the funds together to actually watch the movie. How did you find it, Peter? Did you enjoy it? I, I loved the movie. I didn't scrounge any funds together. I just waited for an <laughs> HD version to go up, and then I downloaded that shit. <laughs> I don't know. Ah, uh, nice, nice. Actually, can I get in trouble for that? I don't know. Is somebody going to come to I think house? you can. <laughs> it. How many torrent sites are being ripped off the internet at the moment? So that's obviously Captain America Civil War, and we're going to be applying it in a political context. Um, but the great thing about that film was that it, it, it clearly demarcated two sides, you know, two opponent groups. And the, yeah. the great part was that the fissure was created over a political movement, over a political idea. And that's where the competition existed. Exactly. Or, or the conflict, rather, was between yeah. a, an opinion, a political opinion, and how that manifested in a particular social action or change. Um, you know, the way Tony Stark had to react to his conscience and react to the bombings in Wakanda. And that, you know, that created a certain change, which was divergent from from Captain America's group. So um, so that was great. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a good movie. Before we get into, like, my analysis of the movie, maybe we should... Uh, because we're the, we're the podcasters of the month. Um, That's this, right. This month. So you're listening to us, which is great. Uh, so we're on... Uh, you know, Acast and all of that. So, but I. But think, we still uh, support you going to listen to all of the other network partners of Agora. So, if you ever wander onto Agora's website, which we encourage you to do, there are a bunch of other podcasters there that are well worth listening to. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you've got some free time, go ahead. But seeing as we've got some time at the beginning now, I think we'll just do our, our ad for our Audible partner. Oh so yeah. Audible is the sponsor for this podcast, as uh, has been the case for the last five or six. Um, Audible has given us a direct access to their free trial membership. So go to www.audible.com um, slash LOL and you will get your first month's free on audible.com. And Audible currently has, I think it's 180,000 uh, books and audiobooks that you can access. And um, go and look up something about Civil War. If you don't know what it is, Audible's just the Audible service from Amazon. So Amazon puts all of its books into Audible formats so that you can listen to it at your convenience. Uh, you go ahead and download anything that you want from its library. And obviously, if you do it through our direct access link um, with the website that Peter gave you, then you get uh, your first month free, which means you get a free book. Uh, we encourage you to do it. It's, it's an app we both use. We both support it. It's very convenient. It allows us to catch up on you know, all the reading we need to do for our studies and for work and for leisure and everything in between. Mm. So it's mm. uh, it's too convenient to ignore. Yep, and it helps us a huge amount as well, guys, so go have a listen. Um, but now, Captain America, Civil War. Uh, what did you think of the story? I like the story. I didn't like the... <laughs> I didn't like that the language that the Wakandan spoke was actually Isikosa from South Africa. <laughs> oh, was Wakanda it? I didn't sounds, know that. Yeah. And that Wakanda was, sounds dangerously close to Uganda. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, the well, political stereotypes coming through strong from Hollywood. Yeah, well, I think that that's the interesting thing is that in the, in the Marvel comic book universe, Wakanda is this obviously fictional African state. But it's in the Marvel 
comic books, it's actually more advanced than any other nation on Earth because of the fact that the vibranium meteorites originally uh, landed there. So that's why, like, Black Panther uh, has all the stuff he does. It's because, like, all their technology is based on vibranium, and they keep, they're, like, uh, very... I- so you, in, a couple of times in the movie, like, they kept saying, like, Wakanda has been isolated, and we're coming back into the world. It, that's kind of, like, just a nod to some comic book fans, because... Uh, Wakanda has been isolated from the rest of the world, and it's only when Black Panther starts operating on a global scale that people start to like acknowledge that this country exists because they're so much more technologically advanced than anyone else. They just, you know, they can do whatever they well, want. I wish they had um, illuminated that a bit more in the movie because I thought that, you know, that would have abolished the stereotype yeah. of this is some. Uh Backward, conflicting African states. African states, yeah. Um, but maybe they're leaving yeah. that for a Black Panther movie, which would be cool. Yes, they, well, well, we know that there is a Black Panther movie. Um, yeah. We just don't know what, where it's going to be set. We hope it's in Wakanda because I'd like to know more about that. But I thought the story was good. I uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought the, the conflict was believable, was mm. persuasive. It was. I liked that the humor sort of diluted it a bit, so you didn't mm. think that this was going to be a conflict that lasted throughout many films. You, you know, it was just almost standalone. Yeah. Um, but they still managed to create enough drama that you, I don't know, I felt that I was quite taken by the fighting between the two sides. You know, you didn't want either one to win or lose. It felt quite traumatic to watch some of your favorite superheroes going at it. Yeah, I think it was pretty cool. I liked, uh, I liked Peter Parker and I've liked what they've done with Iron Man's character. Like the way that uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays Iron Man progressively over the last couple of movies like all, all his movies if you go back to iron man one he's just like super cocky super confident and up until civil war he's become like more and more unconfident just really he, he looks like he's have constantly suffering a nervous breakdown all the time and i think that that you can see that progression through most of the iron man movies which is pretty cool the only thing that i didn't like and um i think it was small i think it's small but I was kind of, I felt that the reveal at the end, that it, the whole plan, like, because you knew that something was behind this, like, moving this conflict along, but it just turned out to be one guy who was just pissed off. I I don't know, I, like, in my head, I felt like, oh, well, that's a bit of an anticlimax. But then again, yeah. I, I don't know, if because it's it's almost like that guy is the symbol of, you know, what happens in, in warfare, like... This is what you create when you when you have conflict. You know, you create these people who just hate everything. So, on one side, from the writer's point of view, I could see like, yeah, it's a, it's like a subtle, deep analysis of the human condition. But on the other side, I was like, it would have been cool if it turned out to be like the Red Skull, who was like puppeteering yeah. this whole thing. The only other plot yeah. hole that I noticed was that his whole plan, you know, the, the bad guy's plan is is is. Uh, you know, has t- is based on the fact that Iron Man and Captain America are going to be in the same room when Iron Man yeah. finds out that it was uh, the Winter Soldier who killed his parents. But that timing is just so lucky because he didn't know when <laughs> Iron Man was going to get there. Like he didn't know, he didn't even know if Iron Man was going to come at all. <laughs> so it's like, okay, just well done, your plan worked. I mean, it's not as stupid as it's not as stupid yeah. as Lex Luthor's plan in. Uh, Batman versus Superman, which just... Oh, we're not going to talk about that movie. We're not doing an episode about that movie. <laughs> just forget it. That movie never happened. <laughs> but yes, I agree with you. Like, I felt that the conflict... Because in this civil conflict, it was an ideological conflict. Should governments have oversight 
over individuals with a certain amount of power um, who are, you know, might be the best at making their own decisions. And, and that was the, you know, that's a central conflict that has kind of been brewing for quite a while in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, I love it that you know it gives it gives podcasts like this a good chance to discuss a lot of content um, to work with. Mm. Uh, but it's I think that that debate is an ideological one in the international sphere. It's an international relations theoretical debate um, that can very much is intrinsically political. Uh, but you you wouldn't really say uh, you wouldn't really want the Avengers to be answerable to a single state because they are the Avengers oh, yeah. of the world. They have to be answerable to some multilateral organization, mm. um, and that for me was really interesting to see. One, it's not just a debate over whether there should be oversight, because I think that is a bit easier to answer. Mm. It's whether that oversight should come from a fallible multilateral institution that doesn't have oversight of any state mm. on the planet, and like think, the United Nations. So that makes the argument a bit more tenuous. Yeah. And also, you know, the movie kind of portrays it, you know, the accords as these kind of all or nothing things, whereas I think it, in the real world, it would kind of be a bit more they would define the parameters around which the Avengers and the different superheroes can act. So there would be some, because Iron Man is worried, not Iron Man, uh, Captain America is worried. He's like, well, what if I see something going down that's bad and I don't get the go-ahead from you to act? Then what's going to happen? I'm just supposed to ignore it. But I think like probably there would be a more nuanced version of the Accords to say like, uh, well, in these circumstances, you can act, of course. Uh, but, you know, we just don't want you dropping cities out of the air because uh, it kills a lot of people. And um, But the other thing I found funny was, uh, while I was watching the movie, was they were talking about how the Avengers had damaged New York so much in the Avengers movie. And I was just, while yeah. I was watching, I was just thinking, like, the government was about to nuke the city. Like, you were going to <laughs> yeah. do so much more damage <laughs> than, the, than the Avengers could have ever done. Like, even the Hulk would have taken... Yeah. A couple of days to just to destroy the entire city. Like you went from we don't know what's going on to nuke it in like a second. <laughs> so who's really the scary guy here? Like, come on, dude. <laughs> yeah, it, it it may it certainly made Captain America look to be the more prudent character because um, he had to, he asked the questions of what do I do when I'm there and you're not? So mm. who makes that decision? And because I'm going to be handcuffed if I intervene, and he feels it's his moral duty to intervene. Mm. and that's probably why he's my favorite Avenger but secondly I'm going to be stuck with oversight to whom people mm. who would ne not necessarily make a better decision than I would so why should I trust them mm. and third of all I can't trust them because we've seen what Red Skull done we've seen what Hydra's done to uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. what makes you think that the United Nations is going to be impenetrable to you know the forces of evil yeah exactly which is why I mean, in, I mean the best solution would be that Captain America himself has to sit in, you know, ha has to have some kind of political authority on whatever board is making these decisions. You know, he's not just a soldier. He's also one of yeah. the bureaucrats. But obviously that makes things even more difficult because then he has to take time off and he has to, yeah. take and, you know, be there. When, yeah. And it just, yeah, like it's difficult. Welcome to the real world, but that's how the rest of us have to work. Yeah, like <laughs> us who work in policy change and development <laughs> and theory. We try to make the world a better place. And we say we're going to sit in some board meeting and discuss yeah. what time we're going to have the next one. <laughs> So yeah, I like that. I like those practical, um, those practical thoughts that we saw from him. That he was struggling to engage with the world. You know that he, you know, forget like the dude's almost eighty years old, and he's uh, he's he kind of uns he's stuck in this uh, in this modern yeah. world. He doesn't want to be. 
He just wants to be free to use his powers. Mm. And, and since he's proven every single time that he uses them for good and he makes the best choice, he doesn't, you know, no, nobody who watches that film, no one in the audience feels that he's being unreasonable. Yeah. However, those of us, you know, who have grown up in the world and have seen what kind of evil is aren't necessarily against political oversight. We mm. can conceive of many situations in life where the government is needed to intervene and to make the decision mm. because they provide a good uh, perspective. They've got a lot of information at their disposal and many resources which can help the situation. Mm. So you can see where Tony Stark is coming from. Um, I just wish that that, that, that conflict um, originated on its own without the interference of the villain who was trying to instigate you know, the the who killed my mom argument. Um, so seeing that, you know, Bucky you know, had taken Iron Man's mom out. I thought that was, that added an intense amount of theatrical drama, which was great for the story. Mm. But in terms of discussing and finding out why the civil war occurred, I thought that would have been better in a vacuum. If you'd just seen mm. the Avengers fight each other without any outside influence, that the, the, the conflict boiled from within. Mm. That you could just see, we just have a simple difference of opinion. There's mm. no, there's no one else here interfering. But you see, that's the problem with the with the uni- with the the Marvel universe in general. Because even in the comic books, um, the and I, I might be wrong about this. So, comic book fans, please feel free to correct me. Um, but in the comic books, obviously, the, the Civil War is much longer, and it has way more people involved, um, and uh, actually, yeah. more people die. So, uh, there's a there's a character called Goliath. Uh, who um, he's in the movie? They kind of took Ant Man and Goliath and put him into one character, which was Ant Man. Uh, you know, he, he swells up. But there's another character in the comic books called Goliath who uses the same Pym's particles, but instead to make himself big. So he's a, he's a giant. He dies yeah. in the comic book. Uh, so there's a lot more like gravitas to uh, yeah. this whole thing. And also, Tony Stark is slowly, basically, going insane. Because he's riddled with so much guilt, because he's like a public face, um, you know. There's a that scene where they, there was that woman who uh, shouted at him because her son died in uh, uh, what's it, what's the place called uh, where the city fell out of the uh, sky? Sokovia. Sokovia, yeah. Sokovia, yeah. Um, that happens in the comic books. I, I thought that that was pretty close, but it turns out I think that Hydra is actually behind the whole thing. They've been orchestrating this conflict in order for the. The, the people to weaken themselves. And the reason for that is because these characters are established as so, you know, almost philosopher King-like that a, just yeah. a simple difference of opinion is not enough for them to actually go to war with each other. Um, yeah. They need, they need something to spear them on. Whereas obviously in our world, there's no such thing as a philosopher King. Everybody is a nuanced yeah. um, individual with both evil. Except you know, for me. Yeah, except for you, obviously, uh, which is why I'm petitioning the world to get you into... No, I'm not, because that's fucking insane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we I, So, I, so just, yeah. to, just to react to that, I want to respond by saying I agree with you. I see the necessity of you know the Hydra um, influence and the villain as it's part of the theatrical drama. It was needed for the movie. Um, I thought it added value to that. But just just yeah. for the sake of debate, you know, if I was playing with this thought experiment in my in my head... I thought it would have been so interesting to just see the 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 Avengers locked up in a room with the um, with the uh, Sokovia Accords in front of them, having a, a fat argument that turned into the world's worst uh, <laughs> fight. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Uh, but the reason why I didn't, and the reason why the movie worked, was because it played on those civil war aspects, the aspects of you know real civil war, as yeah. well as the the drama of having parents and having your friends being guilty of kill, killing them. 
that's uh, you know that that's something that we can't relate to, and so like you said, adds a lot of gravitas to the story. Yeah. But just to make it, so let's get theoretical. Let's talk about civil war um, politically. What does it mean? Where does it come from? Uh, and how does it work? You know, without if the Avengers don't exist. Oh, like so in the real world, what is what is a civil war? Well, that's an interesting. What are we what what are we referring to when we talk about? Because you know, it's it's a ter- it's a term that. Unlike many other political terms, it's often referred to, it's used in common language, people use it outside of political... So, obviously, I think the first thing is that the the title Civil War in in the Marvel movie, it's not a civil war because these people aren't states. This is, this is a conflict, uh, but obviously... So, a civil war is defined as conflict that breaks out between two parties within a specific political, uh, usually a state... So the American Civil War is a very good example of that. A uh, certain amount of American states wanted to secede from the Union. Northern states were like, oh, hell's to the no, and uh, they started fighting. Um, obviously, there was a whole bunch of slavery and, you know, issues of slavery and stuff involved. So usually it's not just about the conflict. It's about the rebels who want to do something. So usually they want to take over the state or they want to break the state up. So we've seen a couple or of they, civil wars. Yeah. Uh, or they want to change policies of the state. Yeah, or they want to become the government. Um, so, you know, that's so what we hear often is there's a rebellion going on um, because people don't want to call it a civil war sometimes, but it actually is. So I'm trying to think of a good example of a DRC. rebellion. Yeah, like the DRC rebellion. That's a good one. So that's a group of... Sudan. Yeah, group of freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on who you speak to, um, who want to change government policy. Um, now, if they won... You would probably, or if they completely lost at that point, you know, it would probably be defined as a civil war. But also, uh, you know, it's difficult to say because a civil war also has to have organization on both sides. You know, you have to have armies exactly. on both sides that are organized and state-like in their capacities to deliver forces to the front. Whereas rebellions, uh, it's difficult to say. So, like, for instance, in Star Wars... The rebellion, uh, that's a rebellion. It's not really a civil war because they're kind of very bedraggled freedom fighters. Uh, you know, whereas if you compare that to what happened in the United States with the civil war, those were very two well-functioning, although the North was better functioning, um, groups of people with resources and bureaucracies behind them that could uh, cooperate. So, I mean, yeah. I think it does get a bit wishy-washy. Like, what's the difference between a civil war and a civil conflict? It, it really depends on the gradations that you want to apply to it. But essentially, it's a conflict no, well, that's combined. Yeah, carry on, go on. I think there are two um, criteria, two variables that change those gradations. I mean, there are many, but the two that I would focus on, the most important are who's fighting and for what purpose. Mm, mm. Uh, if we, we know that if one country goes to war with another country, if two states are involved, it's interstate conflict. That's not civil war in any textbook. Mm. It's, not, it's, it's two organized groups within a particular geographical region that usually is politically organized as a unity, mm. but sometimes it's, it is no political organization. So if there's... Uh, if, say you have two uh, battling or two warring parties in in Somalia. If they are fighting over food or they're fighting over resources or they're fighting for access to water or whatever, that's a civil conflict. Mm. If they're fighting in order to take control, political control of the of Somalia, if they're fighting for authority, mm. that could be that could be classified as civil war. Mm. It's especially true. It's especially applicable when one of those parties is the state or acts on behalf of the state. So it's either rebel, it's either um, uh, military mm. or state police mm. or former military. 
or people who claim to be military will be represented in the military by a particular leader. Mm. So you know that if that military, you know, if that faction wins that uh, civil war, then they're going to have put a military leader in power, and that's how you have you know your representative declaring the civil war to be over, and that the lands to be unified politically under this, his or her rulership. So it's just so it's both the parties that are involved and for what purpose they're fighting mm. that 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 sort of that influence most strongly the the great. Uh, the level on which you classify civil war or civil conflict. And I think that's that's such an interesting... Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And it's interesting because then if you look at... Of the, course, uh, I'm a philosopher king. <laughs> if you look at two conflicts, you've got the American Civil War and you've got the American Revolutionary War. Now, a lot of historians ah, now yeah. are saying that the American Revolutionary War was not a revolution. It was a British Civil War. Because very few people, if any at all, on the American in the American colonies at the time considered themselves to be Americans. A lot of them considered themselves to be British citizens who were being treated very unfairly. Many of the leaders at the time didn't necessarily want an independent nation. They want they just wanted representation in British Parliament. However, when they actually started fighting, um, they definitely were not seeking to take control of the British Parliament. They eventually said, we just want, you know, to be represented. And once that looked like it wasn't going to happen, then they said, right, we want self-government. Um, but because they really weren't looking for the control of Westminster, it's difficult to define it as a British civil war and better to define it as a, you know, a revolutionary war. And I think that you can, but it, it's interesting then if you look at the French the French example of the revolution, um, although there wasn't really much, con uh, not like war-like conflict that went on. There was a lot of civil conflict, but it was over fairly quickly in the American, in the, in the French revolution. So I, that's the other thing is that you have to have war. That revolution argument is interesting. I'm glad you brought it up, but I'm not persuaded by it. It's, um, it ignores one of the important criteria or characteristics that you added to those groups, which is organization. Mm. Uh, I've, that's very important to me because like in the French Revolution, you, did, you you had a clear divide between people. You had a clear objective. Well, it didn't seem like it at the time, but now looking back on it historically, you know, it, it's easier to simplify things. But yet, no matter how much you simplify them, it was never the the proletariat was never organized. The French yeah. revolutionaries were not organized. They had a, a level of organization, but you wouldn't say they were a clearly defined group um, that behaved that had specific means of operating to achieve their goals. Mm. It was very haphazard. The, you know that's why the revolution dragged out for so long was it was disorganized it was ad hoc and uh, very emotional and, and it was a mass it was a mass uprising of not just soldiers but peasants and you know so there wasn't necessarily a war going on you know there were definitely very few pitched battles or anything like that yes. there was a, there was civil conflict in the streets but the, I, you know not what you would consider a war in the in the term no. of like tactics and generals and uh, you know, um, claiming and unclaiming territory and things like that. And to and to add to the dilution of the civil war um, classification, it was it was seen more revolutionary in its objectives. Yes, they, they very much wanted political change, mm. um, but they but more than that, they wanted societal change. They wanted social change that would never be reversed. Mm. Uh, in fact, you know, the political motives they weren't even quite sure themselves what they wanted society to look like. They just wanted the aristocrats out of power. Um, they weren't quite. They, they were just big on equality, which, you know, in political terms is a very uh, popular ideal and was for them worth fighting and dying for. But equality to them meant more as a social term. Mm. So that's why I think revolution fits there better. But in the, in the American sense, um, I think that the, the parties fighting 
they were far more could be classified as far more organized yeah and therefore not as revolutionary because their goals were more political they sought yes it didn't start out as independence in the beginning but it doesn't need to if your idea no, they is wanted to, just to protect simply, the institution of slavery yeah yeah and that's a government policy and mm. even if you just wanted them even if you wanted slavery to be unregulated that's still a policy it's a policy of unregulation or deregulation Absolutely. yeah so so your your objective is still political and the means in which they achieved that was very political mm. and very organized mm. and that's why I would I wouldn't say that the revolution that the revolutionary tag fits as easily there and I think that's the interesting thing is if you when you look at the movie um like captain america never can't, he you know he definitely says no at certain points but He's also like, you know, he's open to negotiation. He, you know, I think that if the whole thing with Bucky hadn't happened, it might not have led to the conflict. He would have been like, okay, let's discuss it. There's the accords, you know, Iron Man, you're the most reckless one of us, except for the Hulk. So, you know, you're the one that this accord is really aimed at. But, uh, you know, I'm willing to discuss. But the whole movie was him trying to find out what the fuck is going on. Um, yeah. And then... You know, Iron Man thinking that he's starting to act against the Accords. You know, there was also a misunderstanding. Yeah. So if the conf, you know, if the whole thing with Bucky hadn't happened, then the conflict wouldn't have happened at all. So it's it's interesting that that even Iron Man and Captain America are not necessarily fighting over the you know over the same principles at the in that movie. But the other yes, thing that's, that's a that's a bit of a shame. Uh, just hold on to that thought because the if we had to use this these organize these the organization of groups. Um, and the purpose of uh, political change, then I don't know if that you know Captain America Civil War applies all that easily because nah. Captain because Captain America's you know, the, the motives were certainly were more personal and more investigative. Yeah. He was behaving more like a military detective, yeah. whereas you know Captain um, Tony Stark was definitely persuaded by his conscience to behave more politically and be more correct. Um, in, you know, in super in. Uh, in conceding political power and, and oversight to the United Nations. And there's also the question of authority in that movie as well. Captain America did not sign the Accords. Um, like, I don't know if America is now a signatory to the Accords and therefore Captain America as an American citizen is bound by those Accords. But there's also like, well, I'm not part of this thing. Like, you don't have any authority to arrest me, assholes. Like, is Vision... Uh, an American citizen? I don't, he's an alien. He's trying to take people's jobs. Fucking got a, got a cool gem in his head. Fucking asshole. <laughs> and uh, like, Wanda is from Sokovia. Like, the American government has no jurisdiction over her. Fuck off with your big brother nonsense, American government. <laughs> but so, like, the other thing I think that's interesting is is this the con the uh, the wording of civil war because I think because of the American civil war has kind of led that concept quite a lot of um, authority. So when something becomes a civil war, it's two very strong powers interacting with each other and, you know, defining the, the, the future of the nation type of thing. So if you, for instance, look at the conflict going on in Syria at the moment, and not the one with ISIS, but the one between what we classify as Syrian rebels and yeah. and the, you know, the Syrian so army... You know the the re the regime of of Al Assad. Um, yeah, I would classify that as a civil war. The the rebels are fairly well organized. They have governmental processes. They're in multiple towns. They have you know bureaucratic. They they definitely have uh, 
armies that they field and they move around and they have skirmishes with the Syrian army. And that's, you know, this is a, for all intents and purposes, a civil war. But you can see how the media is very reluctant to call it a civil war. Um, Although I think in academic circles, we probably would call it a civil war. And I mean, I think the conflict with ISIS is also, to a certain extent, a civil war. Although that's a bit of a weird conflict. No, I no, not with ISIS. I, I don't. It's a violent conflict, and they organize groups. But um, and ISIS, you know, claim to have political a, a political agenda, but you, I don't see it. It's a far more uh, religious, provocative, fundamentalist um, sort of societal overhaul of that entire region um, mm. that includes political change or political revolution, but not. Uh, I don't. It's not one of the. Doesn't appear to be one of their main goals. So I, I, w- I would say they're more of a religious revolution than a... Well, that's, and that raises a very interesting... Although that, that's, even a, 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 that's even violence on the word religion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that also raises a very interesting uh, dimension of these conflicts is it's not just, you know, how are they doing it and who's doing it, but also what started the conflict. And I, I think that we kind of think that conflicts are usually ideological. Well, civil conflicts are usually ideological. We define, um, you know, most of the time when we're looking at the American Civil War, we think it's about slavery. The the North was against slavery and the South was in favor of it. But it had a lot more economics involved in it as well. Uh, you know, the, the South was, was dependent on slave labor. The North was much more of a manufacturing center. And the slave labor was necessary for the South. Um, so... I suppose I'd pose you a question. Do you think that uh, these things are more ideological than they are economic? I think it's very ideological. I was thinking about why do we struggle? Why does media struggle to call something a civil war? Um, I think it's because of the pejorative legitimacy of the state, the connotation of the state always being correct. Mm. So as soon as the state's involved, as soon as the state's a perpetrator of violent conflict, Against and they, you know it's normally the state will call it will say that it's fighting the rebels. Mm. The rebels it sounds bad. It sounds like there's a status quo and someone's trying to change it. Therefore, mm. the rebels are always in the wrong, and it's easier to call that conflict. But because civil war, the it's in has a connotation of equality that both sides um, are equally to blame in starting the conflict and both sides uh, are equally stand an equal chance of winning mm. the conflict. Uh, and they are equal stakes that you know they both have uh, equal amount to gain from the conflict, and that kind of equality does never sits well with the state. It never sits well with um, state perpetrators of violence. Mm. So, so it's very ideological in the sense that um, you kind of have, it's it's broken down the term civil war. It's now being applied to what was once perceived as a particular political camp is now uh, suffering a bit of infighting. Now it's that's called a civil war. Mm. Um, so the violent the violence is removed from that. Um, there's just it seems like a bit of a bickering with oneself. Mm. You know, if uh, you know in American electoral campaigns, if if someone in the GOP in the GOP says something against another candidate, oh no, now there's civil war. It's sort of used very loosely um, in political in, in modern political debates. But academically, uh, it's it's not as ideological. It's more of a political phenomenon. Uh, and it's you know if you were at a I don't know presenting a paper at a conference it would be easier to claim that the Syrian conflict is actually a case of civil war given how both sides are behaving both in organised and political fashion. Well, that's and that's the interesting thing, and I was kind of leading you along here. <laughs> um, <laughs> was that you know there is a there is a theory that I, I so the philosopher king has a Sith master. <laughs> 
dance for me, puppets, dance. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a there's a theory that I've come across a couple of times, and I'm not sure if I agree with it because I mean, I think it's because I, I think it's difficult for us as uh, social scientists to make sweeping uh, theories about you know human nature in, in all cases. But it's it's the greed versus grievance theory. Um, uh, although I, I think that some it's very useful it. theory in conflict. Yeah. But so obviously, what you've laid out is a grievance idea is that certain people when they feel that they have been harmed by a central government or government authority will eventually take up arms against that government um, which may lead to revolution or civil war or, or any other form of conflict now these two thinkers uh, called Paul Collier and Anke Hofler um, they wrote that it's not grievance that necessarily leads to conflict and civil war but it is, is in fact greed that leads to it and they say that when a group of people sees an opportunity, a, a very strong opportunity, to seize and capture the resources and utilize the resources of the state for themselves or for, you know, for themselves and their clients, um, that they will take that opportunity in, um, in the form of conflict and civil war. And they back that up by looking at a, you know, a whole number of case studies, one of which is in Afghanistan. Um, and you know Afghanistan and the Pakistani border, where they looked at how certain insurgents themselves are relatively either they're relatively wealthy or they they actually have access to resources, but they ta- and then they might have something happen to them that causes them to have a lot of grievance against the government. In which case you would expect, okay, this is going to lead to conflict, but sometimes it doesn't and nothing happens. And then you think, well, when would these people lead to conflict? And then they found that when trade routes were open between Pakistan and Afghanistan, suddenly the conflict increased a lot more because the Taliban officers saw the opportunity to seize resources. And when this has been applied to situations where governments are weak, they see the conflicts increase amongst people that have the capacity to seize resources. It's not usually the poorest of the poor who rise up, although those people would have the most amount of grievance, it's people who have capacity to seize resources that do so. Um, and I, I don't know, like, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole theory here because it's obviously it's a long paper. I I, I suggest that our listeners go and read uh, the paper it's, it's and um, their work. It's very interesting. But what do you think of that? Uh, it's I think it's just an application of a particular political model for change. We normally have to establish will and ability or in modern terms, capacity. Uh, of any political actor to enforce change. So if somebody wants something, the only way it's going to happen is if they have the will and the ability to do it. And I, and I think it's so, it's so interesting that you said it's, you know, it's often the people at the base of the pyramid who suffer the most grievance, uh, especially if you look at um, the Balkan War. Uh, but yet they have no capacity to, you know, to act on that. Mm. It's only when a particular actor has the incentive to um, you know, to to mobilize that they actually enforce some change. So somebody who might not suffer grievance, uh, they could be associated, affiliated with it. it. You know, it could be their friends or family or someone that that they're aware of a particular situation that they would like to address. But there's nothing in it for them. Uh, there's not, or there's not much more than that in it for mm. them. Suddenly, if a trade route opens up, or there's a, an arms embargo that's placed, or um, you know, an arms shipment that arrives. That's a good reason to go to war, you know, because now there's an incentive. Mm. So that greed argument I find very persuasive, and it's it's a model that's a you know it's applied in a lot of policy making. 
when you have uh, institutionalized, can we say, policy champions, yeah. when you want, to, when you need someone to lend their name or their ability to a policy, say you want educational reform, mm. you need you need certain members of different parties and certain bureaucrats to be on your side, mm. uh, and they might not be suffering from a, you know a, bad, a poor education system, educational system, mm. but as soon as you give them something to gain from that then they can invent a grievance. As mm. soon as you, you know, if you tap on the agree and you say, oh, you know, if you help me sign this policy, I can, you know, support something that you're trying to run. Um, as long as you, you know, can find it in your heart, as long as you actually believe that the educational system needs to be reformed. Mm. Uh, so suddenly they feel, they think they have the will to do it. Um, and they, and they have the ability given that they're in that position. But do you think that the grievance has to be there? I mean, so because I, I I do know that this uh, this theory, this greed versus grievance theory, has kind of stated that sometimes you might have civil conflict without any grievance. That there just might be an opportunity to seize resources, and parties might go to war in order to do so. And I I find that difficult to believe. I mean, I I can definitely see that people will take advantage of incentives in order to 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 increase their own resource wealth but i i still think that the grievance has to be there at some level that's that the government has to be doing something bad to start off with i i don't i don't think that the grievance always has to be there but it uh but you're not going to last long without it so we we're familiar with political opportunism you're mm. from you you know that mercenaries hang mercenaries will hang around and they are the epitome of greed without grievance it's just that when you look at when you factor in, especially into the Collier Hofner model, when you factor in the opportunity cost of the warring parties, mm. that's when you need a grievance because the the period of time over which your resources are going to have to be extended, you need to be pissed off about something uh, to continue to fight for that long. The exactly. opportunity cost is too high. So no matter how greedy you are, um, as a mercenary, you know, your mercenaries are not going to last long unless you pay unless uh, unless they're emotionally attached or psychologically involved in the in the battle mm. they need to also be angry about something so when you look at you know when you look at civil war you look at conflict that's extended over time and you factor in that opportunity cost then you absolutely do need a grievance so then okay because i mean like I, I i've got two examples so let's look at for instance the, uh, the a really good example of this is what happened in colombia you had FARC and so many other groups of people fighting that, that you lose track of who's fighting who but FARC is this, the central uh, rebel group who definitely started from a grievance point of view. They wanted a communist. Yeah. They wanted a communist state. They wanted. They felt yeah. that their government was very totalitarian and authoritarian and horrible and blah blah blah. But eventually, they ended up being very economically opportunistic and growing yeah. loads of cocaine. But the thing is that they still needed that grievance there to begin with. Now let's look. At, in fact, this kind of proves the point. If you look at South Africa and you ask the question, why is it that South Africa didn't enter a civil war? I wonder if the explanation could be that the 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 lead the, the rulership or the, the combined negotiations between Nelson Mandela Mand- oh my god between Nelson Mandela and F. W. De Klerk, which peacefully allowed the a group of people who were begrieved by the the government to take over that rulership without conflict that meant that they could get hold of those resources without necessarily having to go to yeah again it comes out it's got to do with the opportunity cost if um you know no matter how great your grievance is Mm. if you can satisfy your greed without engaging it you save an opportunity cost you don't have to go to war 
Um, and obviously, and that's in your best interest. So that satisfies the rational choice model quite well. I find that very persuasive. Mm. Um, but what's, what's also important is, especially in the, in the larger African context, when you, when, when warring parties, uh, go, you know, engage in conflict and that conflict protracts for long periods of time, especially when it's engaged with the state actor, mm. the state's got a, a access to far wider resources. Um, but yet doesn't have, the a full capacity so it's got the will but not necessarily the ability mm. it's got a good amount of ability but when i talk about ability it doesn't control it doesn't have a monopoly of power over its entire territory mm. so it often is swatting these minor skirmishes in the you know in the rural lands trying to banish or criminalize or exterminate rebels now when you're trying to do that and you get a lot of bad press from that and so you should it becomes it, it fits in your uh interest structure to factor in the legitimacy factor. Why would people want to support your regime if you just if you're just killing uh, uh, you know people who claim to be innocent civilians? You know mm. rebels are, are hardly ever innocent, but they often are painted as the sufferers of a murderous state. So the state has to lean very heavily on its legitimacy, and 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 when you get multiple um, rebel factions like in like in Darfur, for example. They also have to uh, lean on legitimacy a lot, and that legitimacy often in these cases is derived from grievance, or at least a pretend grievance. Yeah. You have to pretend, or, or at least uh, exaggerate, your loss, your suffering, uh, what your family has gone through, what your people have gone through. Um, and even if you're living off the fat state coffers to support a luxurious lifestyle, you know, as um, some African leaders do, then it's 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 very easy to go back and say, oh no, but remember we were we were, we used this regime to fight against colonialism. We used mm. this regime to fight against uh, apartheid. This is the the time we get to live now and enjoy life because of our and, and as, like, legitimately because we also suffered. You know that yeah. is our grievance, mm. and we must and and we should go to war uh, over that. So grievance can become a, a very much a, a crutch for um, political support when your regime's waning in legitimacy in uh, in protracted uh, civil conflict. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but I do think that at the at the beginning, as you said, that opportunity cost is quite high right at the beginning. You you do need some kind of and and whether people take advantage of that or not, that grievance is still necessary. Um, unless you're just a marauding band of fucking pirates who's running around just pillaging shit. But, um, yeah, and I think that the, the more protracted the conflict gets, the less the grievance starts to matter. Because eventually you're just fighting because you've always been fighting. Um, you know, so mm. Colombia is a good example. It's the, that conflict has been going on for 20 years. And eventually the, I mean, the, the FARC, the entire existence of FARC is predicated on the conflict. It, it necessitates that. But that's, uh, that's why I disagree with you is because it, that in itself, okay, it's not as overt, um, as in other conflicts, but that is still an identity based on grievance. It's in, it's informed your psychological makeup so strongly, even if, you know, like in South Africa, where people have, people who are born after apartheid, you're born into a country that has suffered um, politically, and e- and so that forms a, a grieved conscience, a grieved identity. So subconsciously, you f- you're feeling like there's something that needs to change. There's mm. something that you need to fight for. Mm. Um, you know, and we don't have civil war in South Africa, but it's just an, uh, an example of how indirect grievance can become a motivating factor, you know, or you could call it a, a pull factor. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, I agree. 
And um, I mean, so it just raises the the need to have stable um, government that distributes wealth well across the country. Because if if economic just if economic distribution is good, then it would it would limit the cost of economic opportunism. No, but that's we're getting to truisms now. I mean, how we govern the state is obviously going to reduce the causes of civil war. But I want to know how do how do we apply this greed and grievance model? Uh, to Captain America because we don't see any political gain or any sort of gain for the Avengers signing the Sokovia Accords. There is, uh, there's no reason for them to do it. It's just to appease their conscience. So you could say that they might, you know, Tony Stark might achieve some level of peace out of this. Um, Natasha Romanoff might achieve some, you know, political redemption. And, uh, but the, uh, and they might, they might be willing to go to war with the with the other Avengers over this because they feel aggrieved by what happened in Sokovia that they feel responsible for it. Mm. Uh, but I don't really see that model fitting. I I don't think well, that's it's more of a bickering fight. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't fit because these aren't these aren't groups of people. These are singular individuals making choices based on like an absolutely predefined character. Um, you know, Tony Stark is suffering from. But first, he is an alcoholic. Okay, so he's probably going through withdrawal all the time. Uh, secondly, he's suffering from some intense post-traumatic stress. I don't know why he's the only one who suffers from this. Like Captain America just seems fine all the time. I don't know. Maybe that's a you know byproduct of the serum. Um, but you know, Tony Stark is, has some serious guilt that he's trying to work through. And uh, from his own point of view, the accords make perfect sense. Um, maybe I like you know Natasha Romanoff has has constantly been under control of government agencies, so for her it's not such a big deal. It doesn't really matter. She's not a fucking superhero anyway. She's just yeah. really good at killing people. But Captain America himself is he is a philosopher king. I mean, we've said this about other superheroes yeah. before, but if it fits with anybody, it fits with Captain America because the whole idea yes. of the super serum is that. If you are a good person, it makes you an even better person. And, you know, yeah. uh, Steve Rogers was a great guy uh, and it yeah. made him into a philosopher king. He cannot do bad stuff. Um, I don't know what happens in the comics because apparently at some point he joins Hydra. Uh, so I don't know. Um, but I'm sure, that <laughs> I, I'm sure he does that for uh, good reasons. But, you know. He's also, <laughs> very philanthropic with the Hydra slash fund. <laughs> yeah. Also, but on the other hand, like if I if if you put me down and said, okay, first thing that comes to your mind, who do you agree with? I still agree with Iron Man. At the end of the day, I think a world in which, the, and I know people are hating on me right now, but I I still think in a world in which the Avengers are under some sort of control, and maybe it doesn't have to be as draconian as the Accords, but in a world where they're under some kind of control, is still a safer world where things like the Hulk and Thor can just run around willy nilly because uh, that's insane. Like it's it's crazy talk, and I I I just think I, you shouldn't have that. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I do think that you know the, the greed and grievance thing doesn't play out. It's uh it's individuals acting out. It's just that those individuals happen to have the power of an army in their veins. I, I don't know. I'm not convinced. This is why I like you know fictional movies so much because you get to you get to be indecisive. Uh, I don't. I, I I like the idea of political oversight. I think it's necessary. But of the Avengers, I mean, this comes back to your point of authorities. If the Avengers are signing the accords not as independent uh, citizens of a particular state, but as uh, the members of an you know international group of crime fighters, 
Um, then, the, then the entire board of Avengers is required to sign the the accords. And if they're going to do that, I could I could believe you. I could say yes, that might be a good idea. I can see a way in which it would work. But I can see a way in which it wouldn't work. And that for me is giving those accords to the United Nations with a history of belated political action, non-interference, bureau, bureaucratic over-control. Um, and if you had to uh, play it in hindsight, give oversight of the Avengers to the United Nations in some extended arm of the Security Council and tell them to handle the Sokovia situation with Ultron, what would they have done? How would they have handled it any better than the Avengers did? Well, the thing is, on the other hand, whose fault... The, the whole thing with Ultron was the Avengers' fault in the first place. It was Tony Stark who did that. So let's let's say, okay, let's if, if we could go back before then and establish it, and the Avengers have been sent out under the auspices of not S.H.I.E.L.D. I don't know who they were working for at that point. I don't think they were working for anybody. They are just doing their own thing. They went out, got Loki's spear, brought it back, and then Tony Stark is like, hey, I want to integrate this into a computer. Thor is like, uh, no, that's probably not a good idea. I don't think that that's, we don't know anything. And I think that if they had taken that to a board of scientists and directors at the UN and said, we, we look, we have the spear. It's not going anywhere. Uh, Thor is under the auspices of this body. So he has to follow our directions. We're going to keep the spear here. Nobody can do anything. Let's form a committee and then decide. Okay. Let's do that. But that that might have solved the problem. It, the I don't think so because I th I think you you're appraising the individual consciences of those scientists. I, can you imagine if Iron Man is if Tony Stark is that excited about the spear and you know and you know um, Bruce Banner is as well about investigating it, finding out what his capacities are, how it works, and how it can be used to help humankind. You've got a brain like Tony Stark, and he works for the United Nations now in a research lab. Do you think that the that anybody there is going to tell him no? Don't do it. Or, do, or is the politic is your individual ambition and excitement as a researcher for United Nations going to be like Halsey? I got a chance to research Loki's spear with Tony Stark. I'm definitely going to build that into a weapon that can defend Earth. But that's but that's exactly why. I mean, I think that the your argument that you're making right now could have been said to Robert Oppenheimer prior to the development of the nuclear bomb. Like we've learned yeah. since then. Obviously, that was a bad idea. <laughs> Have like, we? Yes, we haven't nuked anybody since then. Like, we haven't nuked anybody with hydrogen bombs. We haven't no, but detonated but shit on the moon. We didn't build a big fuck-off laser. Like, we have learned as human beings. I think that we have uh, learned from our mistakes. Don't be reading mainstream media, Peter. We know this. <laughs> what do, what <laughs> we, do we know? We, that, where do we, we know that railgun is waiting in the, in the Persian <laughs> Gulf. <laughs> But look, okay, let's let's say because we we can't we can't retroactively change Avengers history. But if if I could if they employed me, Peter Sleeman, political scientist, like okay, we need you to come and draft a system that allows us to work. I'd say this, okay, right? Anybody who is a superhero, like fucking Spider Man, firstly Spider Man, stop fucking around in New York, okay? You you can't be a vigilante. <laughs> He's a sixteen year old kid, yeah, man. You, you can't be a vigilante. You're taking shit away from the police. You're to take, you know, if you want to do that, become a policeman. Okay, vigilante is off the table. We do not allow vigilantism here at all. I do all. not support you. Okay, get the fuck out of here. Secondly, if you want to be a superhero, that is absolutely fine. You can act in a superhero capacity in certain circumstances. Those circumstances being when 
there is a problem... 911 doesn't pick up. No, when there is a problem that cannot be solved by the technology and the personnel that we already have. There is no reason that Iron Man has to go out and fight a normal strategic battle in the Middle East. Unless he is employed directly by the United States Army to do so, in which case we're just talking about advanced weaponry. But we don't need Iron Man to be stopping muggers with lasers. That's overkill. Okay, we don't need that. If Iron Man really wants to help, why doesn't he donate some money to the police force and give them better weapons? I don't know. That's probably a better example. But we can say, look, if aliens invade, if uh, if Ultron starts shit, if anything that is beyond the scope of our governments as it stands now, you guys can fucking knock yourselves out without direct permission from us. However, anything else requires us to intercede. Done. I solved the problem. The accords are signed. Everybody's happy. Captain America, suck my dick. <laughs> I would not sign those accords. <laughs> well, you don't have your names on it. You don't have superpowers, so it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. I'm a philosopher king. <laughs> I have to be an honorary board member of the Avengers. <laughs> it, because the I'm all for political expediency. I see the necessity of you know regular politics and political structures. Um, and resources being used to fix regular problems. But when it comes to conflict, and when it comes to the work that the Avengers do, you're talking about violence that is that affects human life. And when it comes to human life and protecting human life, like every, there's the highest order of political structures, um, especially the state, I'm not into expediency at all. I want the job to be done by the best person possible, as quickly as possible, with minimum casualties. But there aren't minimal casualties, dude. People, how many people died in Sokovia? They destroyed the entire country. I don't think that anybody could have done any better. Well, it, but it wouldn't have been a problem if Iron Man hadn't had complete control over whatever the fuck he wanted to do anyway. And I'm saying that they would have let him build that Ultron anyway because that was in their scientific ambition to do so. No, but see, I don't think so. Dude, think about like, okay, we have... We have advanced scientists right now. We have geniuses. Nobody, let's say, let's say Stephen Hawking's, okay, who's an incredibly, I mean, that guy, if he was able, you're applying, yeah, if he was able to walk around and he was like fully capable, I'm sure that he could build a nuclear weapon. I'm sure he would be fine. He would be able to do that. But um, if an alien bomb fell down onto earth and they said, hey, Stephen, and Stephen Hawking's found it. And he was like, okay, guys, I'm going to take this apart and I'm going to build a super weapon out of it. I I think that we would be in our rights to say, look, Stephen, no. Okay, you can definitely be on the team that does it. You, you can help us out. But we don't think that you alone should be allowed to just do whatever the fuck you want. Because as much as you're a genius, you, you can also make mistakes. And uh, you don't know what this alien thing is. You don't even know if it's a weapon. It could be... No, a- Peter, you, <laughs> you are you are using an entirely different comparative model there. I, I agree with you. I don't think... I think most people would tell him no. But what we're signing for in the Accords is not civilian oversight. We're arguing for a multilateral political oversight, which means that yeah. there's going to be some expert scientific research team that has that in which Tony Stark works and responds to and has certain responsibilities, and they when they get the uh, the giant alien bomb or in this case Loki spear, they're going to do exactly what Tony Stark would do. Well, but maybe they wouldn't have done it over three days and left the thing running overnight while Tony Stark went out to a party. 
Like maybe no, that you're touching wouldn't have happened. That's maybe just that wouldn't have happened. It's not speculative, dude. That's just like good science. You don't just switch it on and see what happens. That's that's not good science. That's not good anything. That's just bad idea. You don't know what well, the spear what, is. Well, whatever, whatever alcohol-free Tony Stark you get out of your accords, you're losing a Captain America. Why? Captain America, I think, would be very much on my side, and he would be like, <laughs> "I'm willing to sign this, Peter. You are a great man. Um, I respect you." <laughs> And um, I have a daughter. Uh, she's like half Captain America. And uh, she's yours. So you take her. Um, and I would be like, I would say, Captain America, you cannot offer me your daughter because she is an individual. Um, but I would be happy to have a conversation with her because I... Oh, well, that'd be the end of your day because she doesn't want to freaking talk to you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that. You can't say that. She loves me. Well, look at that. In the lands of Leviathan, we have Civil War. <laughs> Okay, so guys, actually, this is awesome. Send us a message on Facebook or Twitter or Gmail or whatever and tell us which side of the argument you would take and why. I think that's awesome. And maybe we'll respond to some of the more interesting ones in another episode. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. Please go to the website, landsofleviathan.com, for more content such as other episodes as well as written articles. You can also listen to the podcast directly on the Acast app and iTunes or other podcast apps as well as YouTube. We would love your comments and feedback, so please send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N at gmail.com. Or you can contact us on Facebook as well as Twitter by the same name, the Lands of Leviathan Podcast. You can follow us on those networks as well. Plus, we have an RSS and email subscription service on the website. Remember to like, subscribe, and share, guys. Thanks so much.